The choice facing Brazilian voters on October 2nd could not be more stark. On the one hand is Jair Bolsonaro, the incumbent. He's been in charge for four years, he's overseen economic calamity and as many as 700,000 COVID-related deaths. Confronting him is Lula da Silva. On the left, he was in prison as recently as three years ago and he was the president from 2003 to 2010. He oversaw a record period of economic expansion for the country. I spoke to Sabrina Fernandez, a Brazilian journalist, about both men and who she thinks has the best chance of winning those elections in October. Sabrina, how are you doing? I'm good, Aaron. How are you? I'm very well. How are you feeling ahead of the elections at the beginning of October? Well, um, I'm a little hopeful, actually. A few months ago, if you had asked me, I would say I was very pessimistic, but I'm a little hopeful uh, regarding Lula winning. We have had some good polling recently that actually gives us a shot in the first round, maybe. Um, so, And also, like, campaigning on the streets, a lot of the people, even though they're afraid of political violence, sometimes they're afraid of speaking about who they're going to vote for. There's a general tendency of understanding that Bolsonaro was really bad for the country, so the the tendency is to go for Lula anyway. Yeah, can you explain that one to me? Because if you look at the record of Jair Bolsonaro over the last four years, just as a, a sort of external observer, it's kind of stunning to me that he even stands a remote chance of winning. Because at least with Trump in 2020, you know, prior to COVID, there was economic growth, high levels of employment, um, it, it wasn't just the sort of right-wing rhetoric, but then you look at Bolsonaro on COVID, on the economy, on exports, on living standards, it's a car crash. So how come he still maintains, you know, some widespread support, you know, at least 40%, let's say? Yeah, the thing with Bolsonaro is that it's just not just about him. It's also about the anti-leftism sentiment in the country, especially against the PT. The work that mainstream media did in Brazil for the past more than 20 years uh, talking bad about the PT, associating Lula with corruption, even though Lula um, got out of prison because the process was found to be uh, damning against him, that the judge uh, had prejudice against him. A lot of people still think that, yes, he was convicted for being corrupt. And this idea around corruption is pretty strong in Brazilian culture that politicians are going to be corrupt no matter what, but some are going to rob more than others. So I actually was taking a look at some of the TikTok trends in Brazil recently around elections. And I found that some people were thinking that, well, uh, October 2nd, uh, basically, I just have to choose uh, between one uh, corrupt politician and another corrupt politician. So uh, there are some people who tend to be kind of inclined towards Bolsonaro because they think, well, they're all just so really bad. But, you know, the PT was worse because the PT uh, was even more involved in, in corruption. And when you look into the trends around uh, the, the speeches coming from the, the Bolsonaristas, the people in the Bolsonaro support base, they do a lot of manipulation around it, saying that no, Bolsonaro is actually uh, a very correct, responsible person, and there is a lot of persecution in the media. So um, the, the, their main reasoning here is that Bolsonaro is just uh, somebody who's being treated really unfairly by the newspapers. And the fact that Bolsonaro attacks uh, journalists all the time actually adds to this. But just just for context for our audience, when I say COVID, they might think, well, everybody did poorly under COVID. Britain did badly with COVID. The United States did badly. But Brazil had 600,000 casualties as a result of COVID. How did those people, the sort of Bolsonarista stands, the super fans, how did they respond to that? Did they say that wasn't his fault as well? Yeah, we're close to 700,000 now. Uh, so uh, still pretty bad because there was a lot of vaccine denialism. We know that Bolsonaro delayed the vaccine getting to Brazil. We actually had an investigation um, going on in Parliament last year to find out what was happening around that. But in the end, it ended up not really leading anywhere. And we actually don't have access to a lot of the data and testimony anymore. Uh, so they've done a pretty good job hiding a few things here and there. Uh, there are people who just uh, basically say that, well, it's a pandemic, people are going to die anyway. They're going to die anyway. The problem is that people died and the economy got worse because 
uh, parliament was against Bolsonaro, so was in, uh, enforcing lockdown measures, was enforcing uh, certain measures against the economy. So Bolsonaro uses that reasoning a lot. The other day here, we were talking about increasing homelessness in Brazil. So we have about about 180,000 people living in the streets right now. So this number um, more than doubled ever since Bolsonaro got into power. And when you talk about it, some people just say, yeah, but it's the pandemic. So you can just blame the pandemic as this abstract thing and not the way that Bolsonaro managed everything around it. Uh, and not to mention that he actually really promoted uh, some bogus treatments that actually made things worse. And we have data connecting some of his donors to some of the um, healthcare, private healthcare uh, providers in Brazil conducting tests and uh, without people's knowledge and putting people's lives at risk when they were COVID patients because of this. So it's actually um, pretty nefarious. And what's the archetypal Bolsonaro supporter? So like in the US, people would think, well, it's somebody in the, you know, the Midwest, you know, uh, have a, a Bible in, in, in one hand, a gun in the other. I mean, that's the kind of parody of the Republican core voter. But who's the who's the core voter for Bolsonaro, both demographically, but also geographically? Yeah, we have a couple of profiles. So you can think of like the very hardcore loyal person in Bolsonaro's base. You're talking about someone from middle class with traditional conservative values. Uh, this idea that's really promoting Brazil being like the good citizen, Cidadão de Bem. So no, I pay I pay my taxes and I believe in meritocracy and people shouldn't be uh, taxing more than they already are. And I should have a, the right to own a gun to protect my family because Brazil is a very violent country and women should be at home or they should be very um, submissive towards their husbands. And this is something that Bolsonaro is really playing to lately using uh, his wife uh, along, alongside him, Michelle Bolsonaro, talking about this role model of a Christian wife. So these Christian values, they're very important here. We have to understand that Brazil is a very Christian country, more traditionally a Catholic country. But in the past years, uh, 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 evangelical uh, Protestantism has grown in the country and in the more conservative line, almost fundamentalist line, we have these mega churches with these pastors have gotten super rich over the past years, also under Lula and Dilma. So this is something to mention that the evangelical issue is something that the left doesn't know how to handle. The moderate left doesn't know how to handle it. The more radical left, revolutionary left doesn't know how to handle it. This is uh, something very much of a problem right now. And um, what, what do you mean by doesn't know how to handle it? They don't know how to handle the arguments those people make or the interests they represent? It's just that the evangelical crowd is actually a lot more diverse than people think. And when we consider then when the Workers' Party was created and we think of the Landless Workers' Movement, we think of this uh, democratic left that uh, arose in Brazil at the end of the dictatorship in the 80s and got more institutional and more well-known in the 90s. It's a left that was very much connected to liberation theology. Uh, they were quite connected to this idea that, yes, you could be a Christian, but it could also be fighting for emancipation. And right. throughout the years, because the, fundament, the fundamentalist side of things really grew in a way of like controlling women's bodies, uh, being very LGBTQ phobic and uh, bringing in these ideas uh, that are very anti-communist to the side, we feel like the left wasn't prepared to actually make a counterpoint to that. So you either, either find two things. Uh, you're going to find, for example, Juma Rousseff going to the... Um, the launch of this huge temple here in Sao Paulo uh, by one of the most conservative churches that's actually a mega mega church the the main pastor bishop is one of B Brazil's biggest billionaires and a media mogul and she goes and she says well blessed is the country you know whose uh, lord is god so she gives in to this so they, they started giving in to this for a while. And on the other hand, you're going to find part of the left saying that we should blame the evangelicals for everything. So they reject those who are working with liberation theology and end up failing to provide a more, more of a historical materialist analysis of the situation, which is the fact that a huge part of the working class is evangelical. 
today. People who are really poor, who are going through precarious conditions, um, whose lives uh, have gotten much worse under Bolsonaro, and they tend to go towards what the pastor is saying or understanding that, well, God will provide and Bolsonaro is a man of God. Bolsonaro has been dedicating his schedule mostly to evangelical uh, connections. He His, uh, his um, attendance to the Queen's funeral in the UK was together with Silas Malafaia, one of the main fundamentalist uh, pastors in Brazil. So he's really associated with these people. So when the left doesn't understand that part of Bolsonaro base is not just this very angry um, person, maybe with fascist ideals, but also people who are in the working class who feel very disadvantaged right now in Brazil and have devoted their uh, their lives, their faith, their hopes into this idea that we need to have this man, this Christian man, who's going to help us with the vision of God. And I trust my pastor because my pastor helps me when things are not going well in my life. If we just reject that, we're rejecting a huge part of the Brazilian working class and we'll keep feeding into Bolsonarism by default because we're not actually politicizing the situation. And what the left just kind of, or a lot of the left just dismisses that as kind of false consciousness rather than try and create a political account for it. And also by, by extension, where, where does that come from, that growth in evangelical Christianity over the last 20, 30 years? Just as a, a side note, you mentioned historical materialism. Yes, there's um uh when we look into this it's a quite quite powerful of a project because it involves uh opening up churches everywhere. Some of these uh evangelical churches have this idea of let's replace every bar on the corner of a block with a church. And if you go around some cities it, it actually looks true. Um, because you could, you could go down streets and you're going to find a lot of these mini, mini churches throughout and some mega churches in particular locations. And what really helped them was the idea of opening these mini churches in the more marginal parts of the cities, in the outskirts where the poorer working class is. And when you have this tendency, when you have like a, an economic crisis and people are feeling more abandoned by the state, um, and austerity measures come in, it's also an opportunity for these pastors to say, hey, come in, we, we can embrace you. This cannot be detached, however, to um, the power of these media enterprises and uh, the amount of money that has gone into this. So when we talk, uh, for example, about um, Macedo, who's one of these billionaires who owns one of the major Brazilian uh, television networks here, He's not the only one. Uh, a lot of these churches, they used to do these uh, funding drives with um, offerings and tithes to get people to say, we need to have a program on TV or we need to buy our own private um, television cable network. And a lot of them did that. We have churches who started uh, uh, founding schools. So we can have like our own children. We always go to these kind of schools. You look into the Macedo and he's actually uh, responsible for a ridiculous amount of community radio uh, shows and radio enterprises in Brazil. And we have to understand that even though the Internet is pretty strong in the country nowadays, it's not 100 percent. Uh, we still have a lot of failure in terms of coverage. So sometimes when we analyze Bolsonarism, we're talking about the fake news and WhatsApp, and this is all very important. But radio is key because people are listening to the radio, you know, taxi drivers, Uber drivers, um, um, when you look into housekeepers, because this is still very much um, a country with this colonial legacy of having housekeepers who are black from the periphery of the cities and they spend the entire days listening to radio and there's a tendency of having conservative radio because of that so we cannot detach this from just thinking that well they did a really good job bringing people in and the country is already very christian there is a project that's quite quite similar to some of the things that we know that they have learned directly from the the u.s uh televangelists so this idea of like 
getting the crowds riled up and being on television and opening huge churches and everyone comes in. So prosperity gospel being a huge part of this discourse. And I think in a, in a country uh, of dependent capitalism where like we don't actually develop, everything is still uh, very much with the, running with a deficit the whole time. If you get these meritocratic feelings into people's heads and you put that together with prosperity gospel and people feel like they're chosen ones, this is a way of actually like capturing emotions, effects, and it has worked quite well. So the, the analogy to the US is really interesting and it makes lots of sense what you're saying there. But I suppose what interests me is the situation of Brazil after the 2008 crisis is actually quite unique because you have a progressive government, you have reducing inequality. I mean, it's very, very, very rare historically to have a growing economy, but also reducing inequality, which is what happens with Lula. We'll talk about that more later. And then after 2008, slowly but surely that growth model just disintegrates, particularly after 2012, it just collapses. So I suppose the question then is, given what you just said there, are those the primary sort of social beneficiaries of the demise of the old growth model? So you haven't got runaway rocketing growth like you do, say, from 2000, 2012. And as a result, people turn to prosperity gospel, e evangelical Christianity. Or, or does this turn go further back to the 1990s? So like with Pat Robertson in the United States, for instance. No, like prosperity gospel has been around like from before, from before. So like when Lula got into power, when things started growing, we had like programs for fighting hunger and life was improving because of social programs. Uh, we already had this boom in the churches, this idea of sending missionaries everywhere. We have to understand that some of these Brazilian churches, they're also responsible for um, creating havoc in parts of Africa, other parts of Latin America. There's a growth in, in some of these churches in Venezuela, in, in Chile, in Colombia. So they're quite, quite uh, present in other parts of the world right now. And this project started way, way back. Um, what is interesting, though, is that once this commodity boom that was helping uh, Lula manage the crisis and Lula comes in, they, they find this opportunity to create also some moral panics. So it's not just about the economic crisis, but this manipulation of moral panics that was quite strong under Dilma Rousseff. Because, for example, one of the things that we're still managing here in Brazil today is this whole conversation around a project for the schools to fight um, homophobia, LGBTQ phobia in general. So teaching children to be more tolerant. And this was um, before fake news was a proper thing. This was already going around in Brazil as something that, look, is the leftist, the communists, always like claiming that the PT is a communist because anti-communism was all, always part of this. Uh, they're trying to indoctrinate our children to become gay. And then the pastors st start using that. So this trend of the prosperity gospel was also always very conservative in the sense of telling women, like I have like firsthand of ex experience here because I grew up in that scenario, attending those churches. And uh, some of these pastors who are really powerful today that I grew up listening to them, like I grew up listening to Silas Malafaya, for example, like go, my mother would take me to, uh, to his touring. He would do a tour of the country and crowds would come and they would always talk about the role of women in society and what a good Christian marriage is. And after a while, they started importing other things from the US in terms of like, you have to wait for sex after marriage, and, or you have to wait to have to even kiss only after marriage. And like, this is, they would uh, translate these books from the US and publish it in Brazil. So this conservatism found a way back into this colonial strain in Brazilian society that's very patriarchal that was starting to change because you had the black movement making advances, you had the LGBTQ movement and the feminists making advancements. So they decided that, well, we need to push back. And the left was also not very prepared for this because we have been listening. This is still a problem, actually, <laughs> that then the feminists should just be quiet because if you talk too much about abortion rights, you get the evangelicals riled up and then Bolsonaro wins. So uh, this idea that we need to step back so we won't be provoking them when we actually know that 
every time we step back, they made more room for themselves. They made some very particular gains. And this is why um, the moral panics, they're quite strong. And Bolsonaro has been able to manage it quite well. And I think that under the Juma Rousseff government, one of the problems that we had was that rather than pushing for some of these programs, she gave in. She gave in. So she gave in in her second term in terms of austerity, thinking that was going to appease parliament, appease the, the right wing and the, and the neoliberals in general. Uh, and, but she also thought that it would be better to appease the evangelical, the fundamentalist evangelical leaders uh, and kind of turned her back to some of these demands because of this. So for somebody who's unacquainted with sort of Brazilian political history, they would know there was the coup in the 1960s um, and that the problem with Bolsonaro is there are political appeals to the dictatorship in the past and militarism and so on and so forth. But what you're describing here, actually, is something far closer to the United States, which is there is a, a social and cultural revolution from below in terms of LGBT rights, in terms of black civil rights, in terms of economic and social equality. And then what we see really over the last several decades is, a, is a, an attempted counter-revolution to that. Is, am I being overly simplistic to say actually that Brazil's situation and Bolsonaro, for instance, maps on quite well to what we see with the kind of Republican counter-revolution of the 1960s that we often hear about in the United States? Well, we, we have to understand that one of the biggest... Um, figures of this conservative wave in Brazil was Olavo de Carvalho, who died uh, earlier this year in January. He was a guru to Bolsonaro. Uh, he was someone who was a prolific communicator. So ever since YouTube was along, he started putting videos on YouTube and selling courses and people calling him professor. Um, and what a very interesting thing about uh, Olavo de Carvalho's writings is that a lot of this was like straightforward plagiarism of William Lind from the U.S. So uh, attacking, for, <laughs> uh, this, this, something, this is something that always caught my attention, that Olavo de Carvalho will be attacking uh, Marcuse in Brazil a lot when Marcuse wasn't being read and nobody knew who Marcuse was, right? But Marcuse was a main figure in the U.S. Uh, uh, during that time. So William Lind would make these accusations around um, like uh, talking about errors in civilization uh, as a as a book that's always promoting uh, orgies and the decay of society and the decay of values. And Olavo de Carvalho would say the same things about Marcuse here, but Marcuse wasn't really being discussed that much beyond some academic niches or some very specific socialist niches. Um, but the idea was to talk uh, to to create this uh, panic that there is cultural Marxism and they're coming for your children. So this, like, ideologically, we can find very, very uh, big parallels here, certainly, because we know that got imported. This, uh, this idea of having cultural Marxism infiltrating the schools, infiltrating our lives, our families, and you have to be aware of the communists. This was imported directly in, in some uh, circumstances. And then we find that this was coupled with resentment towards very specific economic policies as well. So when we talk about the advancements of the black movement, the uh, the unified Brazilian uh, black movement, uh, Movimento Negro Unificado, was very strong in the fight for democracy, um, in, like coming out from the dictatorship, fighting for democracy. And one of the main demands was making sure that black people could properly attend university in this country. And uh, one of these demands that finally got attended uh, to by, by the Lula government was around affirmative action. So creating quotas to make sure that uh, black students could get in. We have a system that's very exclusive here in Brazil. We have, uh, just so the audience is aware of this, we have like the, a, a public and a private university system. In the public, you don't pay anything. The private, you pay. But the public is actually the more prestigious one and it's much harder to get in. So creating these affirmative action programs for uh, black and poor students to get in, this uh, 
added to this resentment in the middle classes and the upper classes that, well, I've been paying private schooling for my children my entire life so they can get into public university. And now these people are getting in much easier than they are. Uh, so that that's something that connects economic policies around public investment into the educational system with this resentment around identity politics, around these movements who are, you know, infiltrating uh, with their culture, uh, and that gets into a lot of the, the racist um, paradigm in Brazil that's very, very, very strong around black culture, uh, black lives where black people le uh, live. So we, we cannot detach this uh, from this very strong history of racism uh, that we have in the country as well. You mentioned Olavo. I know we're talking about the, um, the the Brazilian elections, and I think most of our audience, but who the hell are you talking about? I first came across this guy reading a book about quote unquote traditionalists, and it was about Alexander Dugin and um, obviously Steve Bannon, and Olavo found himself there too. So, can you talk about some of the sort of the, the when I say relationships, these aren't purely intellectual relationships. These people were talking to one another, meeting one another. So can you talk about the relationships between the likes of Olavo, Dugin, Steve Bannon? Yeah, well, what's very interesting here is that um, we have a tendency uh, and something that we actually have to emphasize a lot to think that it's all a big coincidence, right? That you have these like new wave of conservative uh, countries and uh, the conservative governments and they're all making their way in, but they're not really talking to each other. But we know that Steve Bannon provided training in Brazil on how to deal with social media here. And Olavo de Carvalho being the pioneer that he was present absolutely everywhere and like with very, very loyal followers was part of this because a lot of these videos uh, they started getting uh, sent through WhatsApp streams. Those were Olavo de Carvalho's videos. And Olavo de Carvalho helped to inspire a new generation of far right YouTubers that we have been dealing with. So when I started on YouTube back in 2017, I was maybe the second or the third like properly leftist YouTuber back then. Everything else was about like right-wing YouTubers and they had millions of followers. So they, they had networks, they provided training uh, to each other. They did partnerships, collaborations. Um, they would uh, talk about, reference each other in, in talks, in writings. So there's a lot of like uh, the intellectual relationship is quite real here, but it also connects to these um, funding streams and these uh, streams around the use of technologies. Uh, mostly media technologies on how to how to get across. But something that's uh, very clear, for example, if you talk about like Carvalho and Dugin together, is like these ap appeals to like this old patriar patriarchal values, um, like this uh, very strong conservatism or like the role of man or what is a strong man in society. And in a country like Brazil, that's that resonates very easily because it, it is already a very patriarchal country. It is a country that even the like the feminist movement uh, tries to organize itself, but uh, hasn't made some of the advances, advances that uh, the feminist movement has made in Argentina, in Chile, in Colombia, for example. So we are certainly behind in that sense. And one of the things about Olavo de Carvalho is that he was very good at conspiracy theories. And I think that's something that helped with the ban on techniques. Because we do know that one of the things about the conspiracy theories is that once they're out there, you can try to do all the fact checking you want. The fact checking won't go as far won't go as far. Uh, in the past few years, we, we've learned to understand that the best way to fight fake news in this country is to um, preview them, properly analyze and see this is something that they're going to work on. They're going to create things around this. So we need to start educating people around this. Uh, and we, we're currently dealing with a situation around a deep fake, a very good deep fake uh, that uh, is going around in the Bolsonaro circles this week. Uh, that claims that one of the uh, the most recent polls um, was putting Bolsonaro targeted to win in the first round. And Bolsonaro actually said in an interview in the UK that, that he did, I think, uh, right after he did his whole photo shoot around the funeral and, and things like that, uh, that he said that if he doesn't win in the first round with a 60% lead, 
something really weird is happening in these elections. You know, so signaling that probably there's a fraud. But, but we have to be quite honest. Every single poll that we've had in this country has put Bolsonaro in the second place in the polling. Uh, and even in the second round, always in second place. So he's using two tactics right now. And one is to claim that the, the polls have no legitimacy. And the Secretary of Communications was actually accusing one of these big polling agencies yesterday of being fraudulent and uh, uh, saying that, you know, these people should probably be arrested after the elections if Bolsonaro doesn't reign because they're trying to influence the outcome. And, uh, and at the same time, they did a deep fake claiming that the same poll was a poll that was saying that Bolsonaro was going to win in the first round. And it's a deep fake using the, the anchor from the main news show in Brazil. Uh, using William Bonner here and um, we've had but the thing is that we spent the past three to four months educating people on what deep fakes are so this helps it's not going to fix the whole problem but people were already aware that deep deep fakes are a thing so we should be watching out for them um, so I think we're slightly better nowadays than we were in 2018 dealing with these technological surprisings uh, surprises coming from the right but we still have a lot a long way to go on on Olava quickly, um, again I I feel on the on these conversations around Putin and Trump and so on, when people refer to sort of fascism, I do feel it doesn't quite capture just how nutty these people are, particularly Olavo. I mean, Dugan as well, right? You know, Dugan, for instance, doesn't think that chemistry and mathematics should be taught in schools. Like completely reactionary people, like they they would like to turn the clock back several centuries. But Aaron, and, what, what scares me here is that Dugan is having some influence in some radical left circles in Brazil right now. Because like I said, this is, this is absolutely bizarre. It's bizarre. But we have a very conservative country and we have, like, we have been discussing this new uh, rise in uh, Marxist incels and like who just hate women. Absolutely. And like the language that they use and they're present on 4chan and they're doing these things and they're talking about revolution. And some of these guys, because like there are guys and some of these guys have been praising uh, Dugin a lot, especially after the, the invasion in Ukraine. So like Dugin is like uh, becoming a little bit of like a replacement guru and he's part of some of these far right conversations. But we have now some um, people who consider themselves to be socialists or communists saying that, well, maybe Dugan is not so bad. He, he has some good points. Like, you just have to filter through it. And then when you look into more private conversations, they actually say, no, but yeah, because identity politics, you know, like this, like cultural Marxism is a problem. We need real Marxism. Um, that's absolutely scary to me. And who would those people vote for? Would they be voting for Lula still? Yeah, they would, they would vote for Lula still. Uh, so that that's what's that this is the strange mix that we have. But it, may, it makes sense in the, in, when we consider that part of the Brazilian left is conservative and they don't like it when we say that. But they, they tried, as soon as Bolsonaro got, elect, uh, got elected in 2018, their first instinct was to blame the feminists. But saying, see, you push your heart. The country is conservative. The country is not ready for this. So the idea is that we're going to fight Bolsonarism by letting the Bolsonaro, the Bolsonaristas be very conservative. So it makes absolutely no sense. And it's not about fight, fighting Bolsonarism. It's about just, you know, alternating who's in power. You mentioned the polls a moment ago. And like you say, in all of the polls, um, Lula da Silva comes first in the first round. He wins in the second round by varying sort of margins. I think we put out a poll today on Navarro. The most recent one has him winning by 5% in the first round, 10% in the second round. So bigger than the margin of error. The Bolsonaro camp says that these are wrong and that they, obviously, and they point to larger crowds than Lula da Silva on the ground. Do, do you think there's any countervailing evidence to suggest that maybe the polls aren't 100% accurate? Obviously, we saw that with Trump. We've seen it with the 2017 election in this country. Um, you know, there's the, that silent voter who doesn't necessarily show up on the data, but then on the day they go and cast their ballot for the, for the more conservative candidate. Do, do you think that could be a phenomenon here? I, th I think in Brazil is that we have mandatory voting and we've have had it for a really long time. So people show up, people show up and people show up 
even if it is to just spoil their ballot, right? We have the electronic uh, ballot system, so they'll put some random number, they'll annul, or they, they'll vote blank, but they will show up generally. So because of this, it's much easier to trust the polling system than, for example, right now in Chile, uh, where uh, even though the rejection of the new constitution was uh, posited to, to win in this polling, nobody predicted that the gap would be so wide, so wide, right? That, that, that rejection would win by 62%. Why? Because this was the first time the Chileans were going to be obliged to vote precisely in this occasion. In Brazil, this is already part of our culture. We understand that we need to vote. Very few people uh, don't go to vote. And when they don't, it's more of this crisis representation. And this is usually allocated in the margin of error. What we've had in the past is, for example, uh, in the polling, underestimating the amount of spoiled ballots that like people would just go and spoil the ballot, but not so much underestimating who would vote for each candidate. Uh, usually, uh, this like the last two weeks before the round, a lot of the people who are undecided, they finally make up their minds. And that's why this kind of polling uh, right before uh, each round is crucial here. So I think we are well positioned in uh, to get like Lula strong into the second round. I think the polling around that Lula making to the uh, like winning in the first round um, that relies too much on the margin of error, relies too much on some expectations around the undecided. So it would be excellent if Lula won in the first round because the second round will be vicious. The second round is something that we know uh, is going to be worse in terms of the political violence that we already see in the streets, the general feeling around fear. Um, people are afraid to say they're going to vote for uh, so the level of threats have increased. Uh, we have Bolsonaristas who are heavily armed nowadays because one of the uh, feats of Bolsonaro was to uh, issue a lot of decrees for guns and making gun access a lot easier in the country. After many years ago, Lula was one of the responsible ones for, you know, disarming the country. So, like, he actually made, like, a 180% uh, degree change in that matter. And now even the, the armed forces in Brazil, they say they don't know how many guns are in circulation. And when Bolsonaristas are threatening people, they're threatening, like, showing that they have guns in, in, in their pockets, uh, under their belts. And it's true that Bolsonaro has a good mobilizing power in the streets because he has this very strong loyal base. Uh, but I don't think this is enough to, to justify a change in, in voting because it's different the way, the, the way Bolsonaro mobilizes from the way the left mobilizes. And the main difference here is that the left spent the past 20 years demobilizing itself trusting so much in these institutions and the workers party is one of the responsible ones for this i spent years writing articles for jacobin like complaining about how how the workers party was demobilizing its own base and this was going to have some very bad consequences and one of the main consequences was this inability to actually rally support for juma when juma was being attacked and when the coup was being orchestrated in parliament and even Juma Rousseff nowadays, when she gives interviews, she talks uh, about how the Workers' Party didn't do a good job uh, in a counter-coup campaign, mobilizing people, it got too comfortable. It got too comfortable with institutions. So Lula is strong. Uh, we have a, in, like too much personalism in the country, this idea that some people that saying that Lula can't be criticized at all, that the program is perfect, that we should just let this guy win and govern the country because he knows what he does. So it's like God in heaven, Lula on earth. It's a bad way of, of, of handling things because it is depoliticizing. It is even bad for Lula himself in terms of dealing with the contradictions that he's going to have to deal with because he's he's running on a super broad left, not even leftist front, he's running on a super broad front. His VP candidate is someone from the traditional right in Brazil. Uh, he was governor of Sao Paulo for many years of the state of Sao Paulo. And his military police is was particularly known for like beating up teachers and like people uh, who were protesting. So Alckmin is disliked by part of the left. 
So Lula made sure to have a super broad front to win, but when you have such a broad front, it also means that once you get into power, you're going to have to negotiate so many opposing interests. And he's well known for being a very um, uh, apt politician, very, skill, uh, very skilled in terms of handling these interests. But we also know that sometimes he tends to, you know, favor those who are already in power as long as he can keep his social program. So in terms of the class struggle in Brazil, he just keeps managing the class struggle in the way that's convenient for capital until an economic crisis hits and they need to get rid of them again and bring in like a stronger neoliberal program. Would he be looking to settle any scores if he took power? Because obviously he was in prison until three years ago. A lot of people tried to destroy him. And obviously he is looking right now at the prospect of the highest elected office in the country. So would he be would he be looking to get his own back? Is that a fear that is kind of pervasive amongst conservative elites or or would he let bygones be bygones? Because like you say, his nature is to be seeking compromise and consensus. He's very Republican. Lula is a very Republican uh, kind of politician. And he's always saying that I'm going to work with whoever wants to work with me. And we know that, for example, the guy, the candidate who's in the third place, Ciro Gomes, uh, who's getting closer and closer to Bolsonaro discourse because uh, the the whole the whole idea behind the Ciro Gomes campaign, who comes from a traditional um, you know labor party in Brazil, is saying is like blaming or like ha- there's a conservative tendency there as well, but it's also saying that the PT, the Workers Party, they're attached to power. If they only they could get out, I could be president of the country, and he's like consistently around like six to eight percent. Like he has no chance. But if his voters migrated to Lula, Lula could win in the first round. And but rather than making that adjustment, understanding that maybe the country shouldn't go through a second round, maybe it will be easier uh, to fight, you know, uh, the more extreme tendencies in the Bolsonaro's base, political violence, threat of a coup. If I went with Lula in the first round, he's very uh, keen on comparing Lula and Bolsonaro as if they were one and the same and yeah and like playing to these um horseshoe theory of like these are the extremes i'm the more grounded option here and this is something that is infuriating a lot of people in the left but lula is someone who will probably even give like Ciro Gomes a ministry if necessary <laughs> even though the guy is attack- attacking him consistently in fact Ciro Gomes was a minister in the past uh, uh, of, uh, in the, the sector of education so Lula is willing to compromise a lot I don't think he wouldn't compromise for example with Judge Sergio Moro the one who was responsible for putting him in prison Obviously, I think there are there are some limits there, but in the center to the left, it would be okay. In terms of Bolsonaro, Lula has mentioned, for example, maybe lifting uh, the some of the secret uh, decrees around Bolsonaro's spending, what his sons were doing in uh, in the. Um, in the presidential palace all the time. So there are some threats around there. And we do know that Bolsonaro is afraid of being arrested once he's no longer in power. Uh, So he's talked about retiring from politics sometimes. And sometimes he says that he uh, he's only getting out of the presidency, you know, arrested or or killed. So it it varies a little. Yeah. Typical Jair Bolsonaro understatement. Yes. Um so The Economist is backing Lula, which I find really interesting. But that kind of tallies with what you're saying about, well, he's actually, he's quite a useful instrument for, for the ruling class because he can pacify class conflict. And, you know, after all, he was at the top of the tree when the country saw sort of really economically dynamic period. What, what do you make of that? I mean, and, and do you think that sort of weakens the long-term prospects for progressive change in Brazil? The fact that you do have somebody who's, seeking consensus who's a pacifier and at the same time you've got the agenda setting you've got the big ideas coming from outside the left yeah so um we have when we think of the economist with lula you could think of like mercadante who's been traditionally with lula with a really long time has more of a developmentalist approach 
two things. So these are the investments that we have to make. But just now, this week, uh, one of the main encounters of like that this is the broad front that's standing with Lula. We had Enrique, Enrique Meirelles there, who represents like a very uh, neoliberal standpoint, um, big, big on, on austerity. And we know this has been one of the issues with the PTs thinking that you can please everyone at the same time. Lula's very proud and, and he says it a lot of times. He's been saying this up until now that never in the history of this country had like big farmers and banks had a, made as much money as they did under me. Yeah. <laughs> so he says that yeah. it was a very, very good thing because please don't be afraid of me. And when Lula got elected the first time back in 2002, uh, something that was quite uh, key to that moment was this letter that got published in the newspapers, like the letter to the Brazilian people, basically saying, we're not going to default on our debts. Uh, we're going to be fiscally respons uh, responsible. So uh, at that time, like we used to, like I, I was still very young back then, but later on, uh, I used to like look into what people were, were saying about this. And it's like, oh, letter to the Brazilian people or letter to the Brazilian banks. So this is part of this project of class conciliation and Lula hates the term. Like every time that we say that there's class conciliation here, it's like, no, that's not what I'm doing. You know, I'm just like working with the best parts to, um, to help the country. This has gotten into a, a little touch of post-politics in the campaign. So like he said uh, at one point that his campaign is neither left nor right. It's for the good of Brazil. Uh, which is worrisome, but at the same time, the campaign has the campaign itself has a very leftist approach because you have the landlords workers movement, you have discourses that are about improving the lives of the working class that the right would never use. So the leftist touch is there, but he's really trying to grab the attention of you know the center right, you know capitalist voter and and ally even in, in the Brazilian capitalist class as well. And part of the capitalist class in Brazil is absolutely fine with Lula coming back. Uh, they think Lula is reasonable, which Bolsonaro was not. So it's easier to deal with him. And like some of the more modern capitalist class in Brazil likes that. So we can mention, for example, one of the billionaires, Luisa Trajano, uh, who owns one of like one of the biggest um, um, retail chains in Brazil. Uh, she was even quoted to be uh, Lula's uh, VP for a while. Like there were, there were these rumors that she could be the, the VP. So there's this tendency to play along. What is key here is what this means in terms of lifting the austerity ceiling that we're living under right now. So after the coup uh, against uh, Juma Rousseff, uh, we had this interim government with Tamer, who was his VP, uh, her VP. And the thing with, with Tamer was that uh, we had a lot of counter reforms back then. And one of them uh, was connected to the ceiling of 20 years on government spending. And this is one of the reasons life has really decayed over the past years, not only just uh, under Bolsonaro. So if we don't lift that ceiling, and this is going to require a lot of skill in terms of the executive, but also how... Lula deals with, uh, with the, the legislative in Brazil, um, he's not going to be able to do much. He's, he's mentioned, for example, that he might just ignore the ceiling um, because that might be necessary, but it's not enough to ignore the ceiling. We actually have to lift the ceiling because we're talking about a legacy of decades. So this has to be addressed immediately. And he's gone back and forth on this. He says it's important and then he kind of goes soft doesn't talk about it for a while. And this alliance of economists is something that might be worrisome. And definitely, we need to get the left mobilizing again in Brazil to pressure to, to lift the ceiling once and for all. And what's the conversation amongst the sort of the upper echelons of the, of the PT and, and Lula's kind of retinue with regards to growth? Because, of course, like you say, he comes to power in 2002. He leaves power a decade later. And actually, well, between 2002, 2008, there is this golden Goldilocks period of global growth. You have this commodity boom, like you say, in, in Brazil, but you just have global growth really high. China has higher growth than it does today. India does. 
the US does, the EU does, Britain does, everybody does. So that growth model, actually uniquely of all the major economies, helped to pay for expanding social welfare. Like I say, you have growth, but you also have declining inequality. But that growth model's gone. Is that part of the conversation amongst the PT? Because, of course, it's, it's, it's relatively easy to give money to, to low-income households when you have economic growth. We had it with Blairism in the UK, for instance. The problem is when you don't have the City of London generating all those corporate tax receipts, you don't have banks, you know, employing lots of people and generating lots of profits which you can tax, then actually that question of redistribution and social justice outcomes is a lot more difficult. Is that part of the conversation with the people around Lula? Lula is still betting on, on some of the old pillars, but they're a little updated now. So let me give some examples here. Uh, unemployment got really bad the past years. Now it's softening a little again. Um, and Lula is really big on creating jobs. So uh, the way that he knows how to do that is by investing directly into infrastructure, big programs for creating jobs throughout the country, using the state as a machine to uh, to finance uh, certain sectors. So well like we have like a, a national bank that's one of uh, one of the tools that, that Lula can use for this. Um, public private partnerships, um, trying to attract particular types of investment, but also investing in um, South South cooperation partnerships in Latin America, BRICS is a huge thing that, you know, uh, Lula wants to invest back in, uh, back into right now. Uh, he's really still betting on the pre-salt oil layer in Brazil as being something that is going to push the country in, in more, in more uh, income. But this runs into a contradiction with his own political program because the pressure in the past years around Bolsonaro and the destruction of nature in Brazil, climate denialism being used as a way to actually build a whole scheme around carbon credits through the environmental ministry uh, and the fact that like you have deforestation of the Amazon but also destruction of every single biome in the country. There's been a lot of pressure in that sense. So Lula's program talks about energy transition like multiple times talks about ecological transition. That's quite interesting. But at the same time, when you interview Lula or Lula's in the debate, it's almost like pre-salt layer is going to save us. Um, so there's a, quite a difficulty in terms of dealing like uh, with what the transition would look like. And that sometimes what he means is not transition, it's diversification. Uh, this is one of the concerns. So uh, we want Petrobras, the, our company, national oil company, to be fully public. This is important um, because we know that if it's not fully public, we're never going to transition. So it needs to become an energy company. And now, like the coordinator of the main workers union at Petrobras talk, talks about Petrobras becoming Solarbras. This like creates the feeling around transition. But when Lula talks about it, it's mostly around diversification. Because there's this whole idea that the royalties from oil is going to save us because we can invest in, into the educational sector and we can invest in healthcare with those royalties. So there's some traditional approaches there. And this is going to run into, like, he's going to run into a lot of conflicts around this. Uh, there is pressure in the country and the region to think of what a Latin American, Latin American Green New Deal could look like. We have Petro in Colombia pushing for phasing out fossil fuel investments in the region, Boric in Chile with a more ecological approach too. So there's going to be some pressure coming from outside as well. I know Lula is a big player here. And what, what, what we're actually wondering is that if the things that are being put into the program around transition uh, and maybe what green growth could look like when Lula actually talks about growth and the creation of green jobs, if this could actually put Brazil in a position to lead the region, being such a massive country with such a massive economy, leading the, the region in these matters alongside these other players and uh, or like AMLO in Mexico talking about nationalization of lithium. So there's enough of a conversation going, but we're afraid that like Lula might just give in because he's still attached to these older approaches around developmentalism that we know haven't really worked. 
uh, in the in the country before. It can secure some gains for a while, but for example, we we a lot of the hydro dams that were built. Uh, under Lula and under Gilma, there were these partnerships with construction companies that would get concessions to run these dams for for a while. This was not enough to actually um, uh, deal with some other demands around energy democracy in the country, deal with demands around transition, got too comfortable thinking that while we have hydro dams, that's renewables for us, so we can keep exploiting oil. So a lot of things in terms of the paradigms um, around extractivism, in the country. This is something that is going to have to be confronted. Um, we have social movements that are well positioned to do that. We have the indigenous movements very vocal nowadays about, you know, putting the finger right into Lula's face and saying, we don't want a another Belomonte dam. We, we don't want that, that kind of development program anymore. So this is, this is going to be one of the main challenges, like what it means to grow the country, position itself uh, well again in terms of geopolitics and uh, and economically in the region, uh, but doing this in, within another paradigm. And I'm not so sure. Like, I think there are elements in the program of Lula that are quite advanced, but when you actually talk to Lula about it, he's still repeating the old things. So I think there's a little bit of a disconnect here, like a, a mismatch between what's in the program and what Lula himself thinks about it. So... We, we're going to have to find out like who's going to win. The people who like the big coalition who wrote this program and put all of these things around transition and new jobs connected to a new kind of economy in Brazil or these more uh, traditional approaches that Lula is still very attached to. That is so interesting. I have one more question. Do you think that Jair Bolsonaro will accept defeat if that's what happens in the polls come October? It really depends on uh, what his base is willing to do, uh, and it depends on geopolitics. So I'm going to talk first about the 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 the, the base here. We know, like you mentioned, the Nazi uh, elements of these guys, right? Uh, we know that ever since Bolsonaro got into power, the number of Nazi cells have grown in Brazil. Like we have data on this, like uh, not just like people claiming they're Nazis, but organized Nazis. This is very worrisome, also because they're armed. Uh, so there's this risk of political violence, of his, um, his base just going wild and doing things. He does that whole dog whistle kind of thing of like, you know, if we lose, you know what to do. He won't say anything in particular, you know what to do. So this is something that worries us. But at the same time, we don't think that Bolsonaro has enough of, a, of an institutional backing to remain power. Like he's tried, he, he's changed his approach to the US after Biden. In the beginning, he would say he, he didn't recognize Biden as the winner of the election. But then they got together again, you know, Summit of the Americas, you know, the, the same old, same old of the like uh, traditional US imperialism in Latin America, they work with whoever is in power, right? So Bolsonaro got a little bit of a, of a wiggle room there, but we don't think US institutions will back a Bolsonaro coup. We don't think the OAS would back a Bolsonaro coup and the OAS would be key like it was in, in the Bolivian coup, right? Uh, so there is, and then there's the armed forces. We, in the case of the armed forces, uh, there are splits. Uh, we have a crazy amount of military people within the civilian part of the Brazilian government nowadays, like over 6,000 military people occupying civilian positions. Um, so they're very well positioned uh, in many strategic areas. Uh, Bolsonaro obviously is always running with a mili military VP. So you had Mourão, you have Braga Neto, you have uh, military ministers, but also the armed forces, uh, they have a tendency that like, as long as our lives are okay, like to take care of us, we have like good pensions and, and good salaries. We don't want, we don't want too much trouble. We don't want too much trouble. So there are splits in the armed forces here. Like we need to talk about the, le the what we think like what, there's a military power operating here. And, and this military power sometimes operates as this um, covert military party, like, under Bolsonaro, but also some of the military leadership, they don't want extra trouble. We had a case uh, last year of um, the three heads 
of the of the armed forces in Brazil um, resigning uh, all at once because they thought Bolsonaro was just going insane. Uh, like Bolsonaro was asking the the air force in Brazil to just uh, fly these um, um, pilot jets very, very low on the ground, close to the Supreme Court, to blow up the windows of the Supreme Court. <laughs> so this is like the like uh, the, the the Air Force um, um, head at the time, like he resigned, the others resigned. So we had this like replacement all at once. And months later, he came on interview saying, this is the reason I resigned. Because this guy has a problem with the Supreme Court. He's attacking the Supreme Court the whole time. So there's a split in the institutions here that, that would make Bolsonaro's job a lot harder. And we know the world is watching. And because, you know, Trump is no longer there, there's been some changes here and there, including in Latin America, right? So like it's no longer Pineda in Chile, it's no longer Macri in Argentina. Uh Colombia, uh, Garrido Duque. So uh, the, there was the defeat of the of the coup in Bolivia. Amlo, despite you know impeachment attempts, kind of keeping stable in Mexico. So Bolsonaro doesn't have enough of an ally in the region, and certainly Guaido in Venezuela is not going to help him. That is really, really insightful. So just to quickly recap, you think that Lula will win, and you don't think there'll be a coup. I guess we'll find out after October second. I hope I'm right. <laughs> I hope so too. Thanks so much, Sabrina. Thanks, Aaron.